And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Ryan Oliver. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing doing pretty good. How are you doing, Chris? How are you feeling, bud? I'm I'm <laughs> I, I'm feeling better. Uh, full disclosure: I know that we missed the episode last week. Uh, that's because I was dealing with uh, COVID. I'm still kind of dealing with COVID. You might hear a bit of sinusiness in in my voice, but I'm on the mend. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear you're on the mend, and and glad to hear that you're doing better. And like, stay safe out there, everybody. Like, get you mm-hmm. know, we're not we're not you know doctors, but like, it just you know. The cases are on the rise, so wear your mask, get your boosters, do all that. Uh, I know we kind of played it off as a joke, but, you know, full disclosure, I think it was episode 41. I'd have to go back to the number, but our episode about mutually assured destruction, um, I tested positive the day after that one back in January. And you can tell, listening to the episode, (laughs) (laughs) that I am not 100% there. So when you said you were sick, I was like... uh, so I'm on the road this week, uh, for anybody mm-hmm. listening. I'm actually in New York City. And so we were going to not have an episode this week. But the hardest thing with traveling, it's not recording an episode, it's watching the movies for the episode. So we were either going to cancel or do like a mini-sode anyway. So it was like, well, why don't we just swap? We'll cancel right. <laughs> last week and then we'll get back at it this week. But I'm happy to hear you're on the mend. I'm happy to be back on mic with you. Very excited to get into today's topic. It, it could get a little weird uh, yeah. at the end because uh, uh, one was maybe not quite as as what esque as I uh, remembered it being, <laughs> but <laughs> but we will get there when we get there. Uh, uh, I teased it at the end of last episode. Uh, these are these are adaptations of airport novels, um, and, and for anyone who doesn't not familiar with the term airport no- novel, they're like. You know, pot boilers, turn page, uh, page turners. You know, whatever adjective people would throw at them. They're the type of novel that you'd find at a kiosk at a Hudson's at an airport. Uh, that people, you know, buy before they go on a long flight, and they become a New York Times number one bestseller. And usually, that popularity leads studio execs to be like, "Hey, this thing is very popular, so let's go buy the rights to this book." Um, and it's a little bit, and it's interesting because we talked about. Um, you know, we talked about Elvis tangential movies uh, mm-hmm. uh, two week two episodes ago. Um, you know, in lieu of doing a, a traditional biopic episode, which I'm glad we did. However, looking at like you know the the most recent Elvis the biopic that's out, it is making really good money. It's almost made a hundred million domestic at this point. Um, and and at least two of the movies we're going to discuss today were were very very big hits. Uh, as you know, as recent as 2014. These are kind of like, you know, the last-ditch efforts of, like, major adult 
like dramas that get made like tend to be musical biopics or they tend to be adaptations of popular books mm-hmm. because they're like the last sort of thing that could get people into the theater it's like it's still an ip whether it's a musician they know or a book they know but it is like more geared towards adults than a lot of the stuff that's out in the multiplex so i thought it would be interesting to dive into that and i guess we're technically tying into a new release movie the the adaptation of where the crawdads sing do come does come out this week oh yeah neither of us i don't think really have an interest in checking the movie out but it is a thing that exists and is playing in theaters I forgot existed until you just now said it so uh, how could you that trailer is played in front of everything <laughs> <laughs> i've been locked inside with covid so i've been uh, not really paying attention to what's playing in front of what i guess that's completely fair um but i guess i'll introduce the picks and we'll get into it without further ado so for the good i've chosen gone girl from 2014 directed by david fincher for the bad i have chosen the da vinci code from 2006 directed by ron howard and for the what i have chosen the snowman, the infamous uh, memed to death of uh, the snowman from 2017, directed by Tomas Alfredson. Uh, but we'll start with Gone Girl. Nick Dunn, you're probably the most hated man in America right now. Did you kill your wife, Nick? Everyone told us and told us marriage is hard work. Not for me and Nick. As you all know, my wife. Amy Elliott Dunn disappeared three days ago. I had nothing to do with the disappearance of my wife. I have nothing to hide. Sammy got friends we can talk to? No, not really. You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Which is a movie that, granted, I was fun employed at the time that the movie came out. So any the movie that I loved, because it's cheap enough to go to the theater, I was watching a bunch. I saw Gone Girl four times in the fall of 2014. <laughs> like... <laughs> I loved this movie, but we'll, uh, I'll, I'll kick it over to you first. Like, what do, what is your what what is your take on uh, Gone Girl, and what is uh, and have you read the book? I guess that's the other question I should ask. I have not. My my mom had read the book, and I remember uh, when the movie came out, I, I told her about it, and she was a, like telling me about how she loved the book. Um, I'm a huge fan of Fincher. If Fincher's name is attached to it, I will see it. I was one of the handful of people that watched Mank uh, on the day it dropped on Netflix. Uh, that's and I liked it. So, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I went into this expecting it to fucking rock, especially coming off of the Social Network, which is probably my favorite movie of the 2010s. Uh, and then coming into this, and it did not disappoint. Uh, and even on this most recent rewatch, Gone Girl still fucking slaps. It's so goddamn good. It is so good. I would agree. And uh, I have read the book for for context. Uh, I have read it um, mainly because it was being adapted into the movie. So I decided I would check it out. It was mm-hmm. a vastly popular book. Um, I liked the book quite a bit for, you know, what it was. But I think the movie, you know, is head and shoulders actually better than the book. And that's the other thing we should know. Of course, it's directed by David Fincher. And, and we'll give him his flowers. And he's gotten plenty <laughs> in his career as a filmmaker. But Gillian Flynn, the author of the book adapted the screenplay. She is the sole screenwriter credit of this movie. So she sort of like re I wouldn't say retool. It's a pretty faithful adaptation, but she sort of like amped certain things to make sense in a cinematic sense and sort of like shed things that just weren't going to work or would have been superfluous on on the big screen. But I guess maybe I should, I'm going to lay down the plot and, and I know we 
you know, we say we spoil movies that have been out for a while, but I will lay that down. If you have not seen it or read it, spoiler alert, we are going to be getting into yes. it with this movie uh, because there is plenty of them. So, but the general synopsis of the movie I have written down is on Nick Dunn, played by Ben Affleck, and Amy Elliott Dunn's, played by Rosamund Pike. Uh, their fifth wedding anniversary, Amy disappears without a trace. Years of fighting between the couple, resentment from Amy's parents, and eerily calm Nick and Amy's celebrity status turns a straightforward investigation into a complete media frenzy, while Nick turns to hotshot tabloid lawyer Tanner Bolt, played by a terrific Tyler Perry in this movie, which we'll, we'll, we'll have some time to get into, uh, to prove his innocence in Amy's disappearance. Um, again, once again, spoiler alert, I'm being specifically opaque about another side of the story <laughs> for the sake of our spoilers so again once again if you haven't seen it turn away um right. but i think this movie is it's so brilliantly constructed and like and, and honestly and what's crazy is that it, the book is structured like this way like you know how like they'll restructure a book for the sake of the movie but the book is actually like structured of like like line for line dialogue like when when nick realizes amy's not there and goes to his sister's uh bar um and says like you know he's like having a hard time and he's like trying to figure out what to get her for wedding anniversary and he's like what she's like what's the theme of the fifth anniversary she says wood she's like well you like you know pull your penis slap her and say here's some wood for you bitch i think is the line <laughs> she says but that's written verbatim in the book and then like right from there proceeds to like cut to the first time that amy and nick meet and that's like exactly how the book is structured where it's like present day past of how they met present day past of how they met here's like it's the movie's so smartly building the case against nick mm-hmm. like brilliantly like completely stacking the deck against him and i would say somewhat deservedly so i think they're both terrible people in the long run like it's it this is the definition of a toxic relationship uh for sure but um but the way that the movie sort of like stacks the deck against him and then completely pulls the rug out from you and becomes pretty much a different movie kind of all together when you get into amy's story Mm -hmm. and what she's doing it's like it's really like well done and it's really funny that's the other thing too is the book is kind of funny but this movie is like a full-blown like like media circus like absolute like satire uh, you know brought to the umph degree which like i feel like david fincher because he's always known as being so cold and meticulous and and controlling in his movies that like he doesn't get a lot of credit for how funny he he can be as a filmmaker at times um like sure. he, he like he just doesn't get that much credit. I think everyone thinks him as like a serious filmmaker. He always finds a way to inject it. I mean, even even in his more serious movies, like like Seven, he has like moments in Seven which are are very comedic that come out of nowhere. And that movie's dark as fuck. Like he wouldn't think that he'd be able to find that kind of comedy in there. Yeah, absolutely. There's even like I remember there was lines that had me chuckling in um uh his his other um like airport novel adaptation the girl with the dragon tattoo <laughs> um you know they're like which is also super dark like upsetting su- uh, subject matter and yet there were moments i remember like being like darkly funny in it mm-hmm. but gone girls uh, like again it's not a comedy but it's also probably his most overtly funny movie i i would argue um because sure. the whole like um 
you know, you from from like Tyler Perry's character being like the the sort of like caricature of that type of like like a Johnny Cochran type lawyer, and you have uh, Missy Pyle as like a, a like a, a Grace Kelly type like media mm-hmm. personality, and um, you know, and Ben Affleck, who like you know Ben Affleck, of course, being sort of like a media tabloid uh, a target for for many years, be, you know, given his you know, relationship with Jennifer Lopez, uh, which, I mean, has rekindled now in recent times, but it's just like, he's always been in the tabloids for something. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I think for one, like, Ben Affleck in this movie is a brilliant casting choice. Like, he he, he is, he is perfect, because he embodies that sort of, like, everyman charm that he's trying to give off, but there is something, he can play smarmy, and he can play unlikable, and he can play it well. And I think the the merging of those two um, is like he's he's genuinely great in this movie. Well, and I think the I think the movie does a lot of things extremely effectively. First off, I, I do want to touch on Ben Affleck's casting. I think one of the things that I was really impressed with in his his um, <clears throat> in his performance here is sort of this this understated charm, which backfires on him because of like the. It's not about it's not about whether or not you can convince people that you're charming. If you are coming off as unaffected or, or coming off in a way where society thinks that you should be reacting X way to a tragedy like this, but you're not, therefore something is up. Although, yes. obviously, the thing that they talk about in true crime all the time is that nobody reacts to tragedy in the same way. You can't expect somebody to react some way just because they're not reacting that way doesn't mean that necessarily they're a murderer. But uh, a lot of the time in this movie, he's you can he already has his reservations about whether or not he believes that anything has actually happened to Amy, uh, and mm-hmm. so like he has his own reservations, and so then he's not really morose or distraught as to what's going on, and everyone else is assuming the worst, and so because he's in this gray area, and because of the way that the first half of the movie paints his character. It, it leads to the audience doubting him. It leads to everybody around him doubting him. But then once you once more the the onion is peeled back, and you realize that, that that's just who he is, and he consistently plays that same character the entire way throughout the movie, you right. kind of feel like a piece of shit for having judged him that way. And the movie is kind of pointing out like and trying to make you feel like a little bit of a hypocrite to where like this is an extreme circumstance. Of course, like it's a dramatized right. circumstance. Something like this would probably never happen in a million years. Who knows? However, you you made an asshole of yourself by making assumptions, and I thought that was really brilliant. That the way that it's set up, playing off of specifically Ben Affleck's character, that he tends to sort of embody in his roles. Absolutely, but I love that they don't let him off scot free either. That's it's like the sort of like it's a balancing act, right? Because right. it's like the the movie definitely shines you know points a mirror back at you like in that societal way that you're talking about of like oh don't you feel foolish because you Mm -hmm. just assumed that this person was a sociopath um you know and and a psychopath and a murderer um but he turns out not to be but it's like also but it's like they've had their tussles they've had like physical fights as we see in flashbacks uh he is cheating on her with um emily i'm gonna butcher her name rock rock rockatass i think it's rogerskowski Yes, the girl from the Blurred Lines video, which also yes. makes sense in this sort of media frenzy sort of context, because <laughs> that Robin Thicke got, you know, that was a yes. big, you know, thing when that song came out, that video came out. So, also a per- perfect bit of casting, for sure. Um, 
So it's like it doesn't let him off scot-free, but then, yes, when it takes that turn, when you're like, oh, but Amy's actually the one, Amy's actually the one that people think that Nick is, which I find that, like, fascinating, um, you know, when it flips, that she's that she's the one who's a bit more, like, cold and a bit more, like, sort of numb to certain feelings and who ultimately ends up being a murderer by the end of the movie in one of the most, she's like... She's a straight sociopath. Yeah, it's absolute sociopath, shit. for sure. But I, th- it is scary as shit. But it's like, but I, I still, I find it, I find it so fascinating, though, like, the way that she, wore, like, she, she's, neither character is sympathetic, which I think is important, because mm-hmm. you can actually sort of watch it sort of objectively unfold and watch, like, each of their plights sort of happen. Um, and knowing that, like, and the sort of, like, dark, and I know we're glazing over a lot of stuff, but sort of, like, the dark exclamation point that the movie puts on it because they, like, are going to have a baby together and end mm-hmm. up back together where it's just, like, you shouldn't, this shouldn't be, you shouldn't still be together. Like, this is no. this is a horrible, horrible thing. And yet it just continues on. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Well, I thought that was an interesting thing, too, because, so, I mean, the movie has basically two unreliable narrators in that we're we're following uh, Nick at first, and we can't really take what he's saying at face value, and then we get to the the latter half where Amy is now the narrator telling her story, and we find out that we've been strung along by her story the entire time up front. Uh, So, like, the one of the portions of that unreliable narration is in like the first half of the movie. There's a flashback portion that is taken from uh, a diary that she has been writing that the police discover. And in the diary, they're having like a blowout fight in the staircase where, uh, uh, Amy's character, of course, because it's from the perspective of the diary, she's portrayed as being, Oh, come on, Nick, I want to make this work. And he's, he's, I don't think he's drunk, but he's definitely like angry and yelling at her. This is the scene where he throws her against the staircase. And and she has the line where she says, I think this man may truly kill me. But the, it's during this scene where she says to him, like, well, I thought about, you know, maybe trying to have a baby. And he says like, oh, you think we're going to be, you know, one of those couples who has a baby to try and save their marriage. And that's like an argument that they're happening. And I thought it was funny that we, we hear from Nick at one point, and it's not substantiated, but when he's uh, having a conversation with his sister Margot, played by Carrie Coon, he tells her, I wanted to have a baby, and she shut it down. She said no. So I thought it was funny how the whole thing is flipped around to where if we're if Nick is telling the truth in this instance, Nick wanted to have a baby, uh, Amy told him no, then now at the end of the movie, Amy has gone behind his back in a really fucked up way to get pregnant and trap him in this marriage to quote unquote save the marriage which was yes <laughs> this thing that they fake fought about in this diary entry so i thought like th- there's really interesting things like that where you can see just sort of how fucking crazy amy's character is uh, uh right i mean that's not that's not the only example of how fucking crazy she is but that well, was no. one that i was really impressed with because, yes, she writes that entire diary. So with the diary, any of the stuff we witnessed were like, you know, there's it's probably a, a complete mix of truth and fiction, mm-hmm. you know. Because it's like it's written from the standpoint of like literally written from the five years they've been together. So like when they met at that restaurant and then they have the sugar storm, uh, which has like one of the best bits. That and like home best bits of the score, which of course shouts out, shouts out to the score. Uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, it's... 
fantastic. I still listen to the score just isolated, just like in my Mm -hmm. like day to day like writing and and working playlist. I have uh, tracks from Gone Girl in it. Um, But yeah, we're witnessing you know probably a blend of, of fact and fiction, and this sort of like breaking point of somebody who's like who somebody who doesn't you know who doesn't also want to be constrained by what society so we're looking at nick right and like the evidence is pointing towards an assumption and then that assumption appears to be wrong and what people see about amy on the surface prior to like what we see in this latter half of the movie is like you know cool the cool girl that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot of like you know like having to be like play the cool girl or having to play like the proper um, you know, of course, you know, being famous for, for the series of Amazing Amy books. So having to kind of mm-hmm. be, like, proper for people and have this image that other people think of you. And she's like, well, I don't, fuck that. I don't want to have that image. And does the complete 180 from it. So it's like, even though she's kind of arguably psychotic, um, it's also fascinating. Where it's like, society tells me or that I'm this one thing and I don't want to be this thing. Well, and I guess that can lead to, to a question I was going to ask because you have read the book. The movie is a, a trial by media, and, and that's basically the it, it, like the crux or like the, the underscore of the movie itself, which is done very, very well. And I think the movie plays it up like a bit more. Uh, but mm-hmm. I was going to ask if that is that element still largely a part of the book as well, or is it more of a straightforward thriller mystery? It's more of a straightforward forward thriller mystery i mean i like that element is there um you know because you have the characters you know who are in it you know such as like tyler perry's character and miss Pyle's character like they're they're characters in the book but it's one of those things where it's like because you're reading you know descriptors from the character's point of view you you don't have the camera so it's like the camera is also a character and the camera's a character in most movies you know so it's like you don't have that sort of like viewpoint so it's like you're you're reading it all from nick's perspective so it's almost very like sweaty flustered like you know kind of like uh you know standoffish and and um so like that element is there but because you're reading so firmly into the characters each perspectives through the prose it doesn't isn't played up as much whereas like you know the camera being sort of uh, sort of trying to be an objective observer in this whole thing, it, like, they really amp that element up into the movie. Um, well, and I'm I glad think... that you said that the camera is a character, especially because it's a Fincher movie, and Fincher talks about the camera, like, about how voyeuristic movies are, and how yes. he wants his movies to come across that way, where you feel like you're looking at something that you shouldn't be able to see. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and Fincher's one of the greatest, like, proprietors, contemporary proprietors of that, and, and I think it was a smart decision, you know, because I'm sure, you know, both him and Gillian Flynn, because he was also a producer on the movie, too. I'm sure they sat down and were like, okay, how can we make this, how can we make this the sort of crux of the narrative? And I also think it's refreshing, right? Because I think, like, a one-to-one adaptation, as we're going to get to in our next movie, just just doing it doesn't make it interesting in and of itself if you're just like well here's the adaptation i was like yeah okay it's faithful but like there's no blood pumping in its veins there's no life in it it's a different medium you have to treat it differently (laughs) and that's that's what i feel like they did a brilliant job with in this movie where they're like it's a different medium yes the core story is still the same but there's certain aspects that are going to play better cinematically 
than they were going to in the book or vice versa. And so it's just like they blended the two perfectly together, I I feel anyway. And oh, yeah. it also and it also creates a better surprise for the audience too because you got to imagine because given the the sort of adult oriented audience who goes to see a movie like Gone Girl, like a lot of people have read the book. Not everybody, but a lot of people going to see this movie has read the book. So they already know how the movie's going to end when they go in, right? And so like changing it up and doing something different um while still keeping the same core story i think is a smart way to go it's called again it's called adaptation <laughs> and it's hard to do as we've seen in the movie adaptation it's hard to <laughs> go do. back and give it a listen on episode <laughs> i don't remember uh no i the i, I don't want to harp on the movie too long or I, I guess stick too long in the movie because sure we, i think we both have explained that we adore it uh, it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, please go watch Gone Girl. It's fucking great. Uh, but this is such a perfect example of, and it helps to have the screenwriter, uh, the same you know writer as the novel, who actually understands how to write uh, a script. <coughs> J.K. Rowling. But uh, <laughs> she also wrote Widows, which is a movie that I've been singing praises, uh, which uh, is not based on anything. Jillian uh, Jillian Flynn just wrote that script original, and it's Widows. I've not seen it. It's on my you list. Should, you should watch it. <laughs> um, but the the not only just getting like moving the story over to the, the medium and then letting Fincher do what he does best, uh, telling a story using uh, visuals like to to their, the best of their ability. But the movie's two hours and twenty nine minutes long. Does not feel it. It is nope. it is cooking. The, the pace carries you through. You you do not feel the time pass. You are so absorbed into the movie to where like it, it's just the pounding. Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score. It's the, the amazing editing taking you between each of the locations with with the the amazing uh, Fincher color grading that just gives it this dark and eerie and mysterious feel as yep. they're going through uh, what we assume are crime scenes. And Fincher's already proven to be um, a lover of true crime and have an adept eye for true crime. Uh, Zodiac, keep an eye out for a future episode of Good, Bad, What, where we talk about Zodiac. Uh, the everything just sort of is hitting on every cylinder here where this is still fincher at the top of his game this is it's it's just a master class in filmmaking that just happens to have a a mass appeal story that is tweaked to fit the new medium uh to perfection agreed i don't think i could say it better i pretty much do want to leave it there i just want to shout out a couple other like performances slash deals you already mentioned the editing kirk baxter longtime fincher editor fantastic shabby jeff cronenwith also fincher's usual dp but i also a couple performances we haven't pulled out that i just want to give a quick shout outs to uh kim dickens and patrick fugit as uh detective bonnie and uh, officer gilpin are fantastic and they feel like authentic uh too like that's the thing it's like you know movie cops or movie cops and there's a lot of like glamorizing and there's i don't know i have have issues with that sometimes i struggle with that as someone who likes crime movies too like it's just hard but like there's such an authenticity to this uh to their performances i think they're fantastic and the last one we got a shout out uh who meets a horrible horrible fate is neil patrick harris in the movie uh is also great uh in in and that scene is great too oh my god it's so good where the, the the that's where like the most pounding score comes in and then it's like the editing it's like fading it out and then back in mm-hmm. oh my god it's As so he's good. like losing consciousness and blood yeah it's yeah. it's it's so well done and good point about 
Kim Dickens and, and Patrick Fugit, I didn't think about how, like, you're right, I also don't like it when <clears throat> super cops are there and, and they just absolutely care about the the safety of the people around them and the utmost, like, they don't exist, it's not a thing. Yeah. Stop portraying them that way, they are people, they have gradients, they can be wrong. But that's what I love about them in this movie is, even to somebody who is a true crime fan, they're investigating a, a missing woman with a, a possibly estranged uh, husband who has several motives as to why he would have maybe made her go away and they found blood in the kitchen like they are handed evidence that would definitely lead them down the path to the husband is the most likely suspect in a missing person's case of a wife like that it makes sense that they would be investigating him and they end up getting a little bit of egg on their face by you know the end when Amy does turn back up and she has her own story but I love the scene where Amy is in the hospital and she has a captive audience because yes. she's a performer of, of all of these cops and and the hospital staff who are there and waiting on every word to oh you poor brave thing i can't believe and uh kim dickens as uh, uh ronda uh, detective ronda has the the audacity to ask her a few things because her story isn't quite lining up and she gets sort of reprimanded by her superior who's just like you can't ask her those things and it's like her job gets curtailed because it doesn't fit the public narrative it doesn't fit mm -hmm. like this story is warm and fuzzy and feels good she's a survivor and she escaped and she made it isn't that a nice little bow to put on this case to make it go away and so i i kind of liked how we're we're hitting on on failings in, in not just media but in the police that investigate such things and in the people who are caught up in these cases and what it means to actually be a litigator in a high profile case of this like they're touching on so many different things that we we don't really think about but they're not wallowing in it they keep it still like kind of moving and fluid and everybody gets their equal share and it, it it's just again back to just amazing storytelling terrific storytelling I, I and that scene will be burned in my brain forever the one in the hospital because the the one shot that has stuck with me and it and it it, it makes me laugh but then it like that laugh sticks in your throat at every viewing is during that interview when detective bonnie is asking the questions and there's they cut over to to Nick to Ben Affleck out in the hallway and he can't hear right because he's just he's out there but she like looks and she just gives the biggest like relieved smile and it was just like oh my god and he, he gives like a hunger games like like salute he just kind of raises his hand and like a hi yeah. he has to, and, and like not only but like i also love when she's been missing this whole time and then after she kills neil patrick harris she comes pulling up to their house soaked in his blood yes and like runs up the front steps and like hugs him and she's weeping and like he can't he's he just like you fucking bitch. Yes. <laughs> like, just like, like, says it right in her ear. And, like, but behind them and out in the street are all the reporters flashing their cameras and be like, oh, she made it home. And they like, it's, if you can sell the story, the facts don't matter. And that is the truly terrifying thing in Gone Girl. It, it's yes. not, it, it's not even just the story that's being told here because the story here is almost nonsensical like nobody would be able to button up a story this tight and have everything pull off that's why it's a movie the narrative is satisfying however the the media glomming onto what makes a good story and then 
ignoring facts in order to tell that story over and over and over again to drill it into a populace is yes. very real and that's the real terror absolutely uh i have to preface i almost saw this movie a fifth time in the theater um and it was the uh, i don't know it was a day after that i had proposed to to my now wife and she had read the book also but we decided this was probably not the the movie it's to a go good see celebration on yeah. that cloud nine yeah and we, we we went and saw uh we went and saw the movie chris rock directed from a few years back called top five from the same year and it was a much better choice for that uh, that occasion for sure um what's not a better choice for any occasion <laughs> i'm just getting really bad with these segues they're terrible uh, it works is <laughs> is the Da Vinci Code from 2006? Professor Langdon, the chief of police would like your assistance. I'm not sure how much help I'm going to be here. Dear God, he did this himself in his own blood. Is it possible? This is a message your grandfather left you. He left us. Might be some kind of anagram. Can you break it? Demons, omens, codes, monks, Da Vinci. I guess what is your relationship with the? Because this is a book you have read, correct? Yes. Okay. I I read this in high school, and I was I guess fifteen. I'm trying to remember when this book came. It came out in like 2003. Yeah, I actually don't remember when. The, I think it, <clears throat> um, two, yeah, it was somewhere in there. I was definitely a sophomore or a junior, so I think I was I think I was 15 when I read it, and uh, I was raised Catholic. Uh, so I remember reading the book and it being very anti-Catholic church and being 15. So naturally being like, fuck yeah, <laughs> get him. Uh, now I'm 33 and I'm like, yeah, I mean, fuck him. Uh, but uh, like the attitude is you know, roughly the same, but the, I remember this being like a huge thing. And at this age, we still, <clears throat> we didn't regularly go, but we would sometimes go to Catholic mass and I remember, like, this being, like, a hush-hush, like, you heard about this Da Vinci Code book and the things that they're saying about the Catholic Church and how evil they are and whatnot. And so I remember that being a, a, a point of teenage rebellion. And I remember the book being enjoyable. I don't think I saw the movie when it came out, though. I, I, I don't think I did. I, I watched it later on in college and completely forgot about it until this latest rewatch. <laughs> that's totally fair i i read the book roughly when it came out as well and i i this will be interesting and you'll probably have to help me with a lot of this because i don't have a religious background of any kind right. i wasn't really raised on any sort of religion i just found it to be an interesting mystery book and it was kind of like uh, it was kind of like national treasure for grown-ups mm -hmm. which is kind of like how i how i sort of approached it when i when i read it and so when they were making the movie i didn't see the movie in theaters i actually remember this vividly weirdly enough uh as, as a group of my friends went with uh, another one of my friend's parents they took us to the theater but their parents went and saw the da vinci code and we went and saw x-men the last stand uh in the theater nice. over so i uh, well not so much that one's pretty bad <laughs> but Take your pick yeah i guess yeah i mean yeah I, I, either way um at least one of the directors at least one of the directors is not a dirtbag uh with and by that i mean ron howard ron how i i will not besmirch ron howard in as far as a person no. is concerned um 
I don't always love his movies, but I will not bes- besmirch Ron Howard. But I did see it later, like, when it came to DVD. Like, I, I rented it when it came out, like, at Blockbuster or something. And I remember liking it. I liked this movie when it came out. And I think it was around the time where I was, like, you know, like, I had watched... The Departed came out around that, like, time in the fall. And, like, then I started watching more Scorsese movies. Started watching, like... You know, so I was just like, movies for grown-ups. Yeah, I'm not watching, like, you know, kid shit, even though I watched the newest X-Men movie, like, six months prior to, to this. Um, but, man, oh, man, upon rewatching this movie, what a snooze. Like, it is so boring. Like, uh, shockingly boring. Um, and it's just like you have... I think it's just it's just I think it's just sort of baffling it, it, on many levels. For, for, for one, it's like you have you know, a multiple Oscar-winning nominated director and actor, and lead actor, um, you have a pretty terrific supporting cast around them. Stacked cast. Uh, Yes, super stacked cast. Audrey Tateau and, like, probably really her only Hollywood movie. Like, I I can't really think of any other big... Like, she'd been in some other English-language movie, but it's, like, the only Hollywood movie she was in. Um, which is weird. They really wanted her for the part and like sort of moved mountains so that she could go to like the, the, uh, um, uh, audition for it, but they like give her nothing to do. It's like really <laughs> sucks. Uh, and, and you have Jean Renault in it and, uh, uh Paul Bettany, Ian McKellen, McKellen uh, Molina, Alfred Molina, Jurgen Prunch now, like yeah. you have a ton of great people in this movie. Um, I saw Jurgen Prunch now, and he takes them through that, like, you know, underground secret thing. And I was like, wouldn't this movie just have been so much better if it was just Just beer fest? Just taking a beer fest? (laughs) 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 Which I just watched the other day. It mostly holds up. Beer fest? Yeah. Coming to a good, bad, what episode near you? Good. I was going to say you should fit it into an episode so I can rewatch it because I haven't seen it in years. (laughs) I I got it on the sheet. It's just hard to work in Beer Fest in in an episode because I got to find a a comparable good and bad. I I got some ideas. Okay. Well, good to know. Um, But you have a stacked cast, and I think I got to double check. It was a David Kep who adapted it, which. Hit or miss? Uh, no. Oh, oh, shit. No, never mind. Oof. It was Akiva Goldsman. There you go. There's, there's part of your problem. <laughs> Oof. Oof. Sorry, I, I should, should maybe hold back a little bit, but uh, oof. Oh, and we've unraveled our own Da Vinci Code here. Oh, uh, that live on mic. It was as simple as Apple. Like, it was right there. It's a Kiva. Kiva uh, Goldsman. Okay, there we go. Problem solved. Well, and I can't I can't give too much flack to Akiva Goldsmith because as far as I can remember from the book, this is about as faithful of an adaptation as you can be. It is. And I, I guess as much as I don't like his work by and large, you know, he's responsible for the pretty rough, like... Uh, oh, why can't I think of the author of, like, The Client and A Time to Kill? Like, he adapted those books. Um, he did Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, uh, the mm-hmm. screenplays for those, uh, among many other things. But um, but I think you're right, because the, the, the I, I do think a lot of the blame, unfortunately, has to be laid at the feet of Ron Howard for this one. And and Ron Howard's done some, some great movies. Apollo 13 is a great movie. Mm-hmm. The Papers is a great movie. Like, I, you know... He's, he's Frost Nixon I like, Rush I liked from a couple years ago. Um, 
but it's just such a like there's just no oomph to this movie like it's such a just like kind of cataloging of it and and the fact that like poor tom hanks man like i so like i wrote i wrote on my letterbox when i watched elvis that his portrayal of colonel tom parker in that movie was the worst performance of his career and i after rewatching this i stand corrected because (laughs) because he made a choice as colonel tom parker it was a bad and ill-advised choice but it was a choice nonetheless and here he's he is saddled to just dole out exposition. He's not a character, Robert Langdon. No. Like, he's just a mouthpiece to deliver exposition and to describe what this symbol means and, oh, your grandpa meant this and this is what this means. And, and uh, it's just, like, super just dry, dry, dry material. A movie like this that should be... A movie like this that had so much, like, taboo because of the Catholic Church being like, oh, my God... The mere thought that Jesus was married is, like, (laughs) so sacrilegious. And the fact that, like, you know, the movie also has, like, action sequences, kind of. Like, there's car chase and, like, foot chases in the movie, and it's just so sluggish. Like, just, like, who could care? (laughs) Well, and I mean, like, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds in the theology bit of it, but, like, it does bother me. Just because... Sure. I think from the standpoint of the Catholic Church, I think they were more upset that they're portrayed in the book as being murderous. And that yes. there is this secret society of people who essentially have a conspiracy theory and that they have had this cabal of people that are going around and murdering people. Which, sorry Catholic Church, there is a historical record. There are a bunch of murderers that came from the Catholic Church. But, uh, you know, there's nine crusades that uh, have something to say about you popes. But the when... The, the the whole conceit of the story is that Jesus had sex with Mary Magdalene, that he was married, which, like, he's a 31-year-old Jewish guy. Like, yeah, like, why, he's a, he's a man, he's in the flesh, why would he not be allowed to marry and have sex? But basically, he has sex with Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene gets pregnant, she has a, a baby while in exile, and now there's, like, a bloodline that still exists today of people who are descendants of a historical jesus christ um first of all that does not negate his divinity there's nothing in the bible that says that if jesus busts a nut he is no longer god like there's there's nothing in there that's just like he has to abstain from all sex or else he cannot be god embodied plus we went through this whole thing like two decades prior with Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ because yeah. it depicts uh, Jesus having sex at the end of that movie. Um, or like or like the road not taken of like, okay, mm-hmm. what if he wasn't the Messiah? But like even even though it was a theoretical like situation, they were like, oh my God. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, why? Like, it, like, why? It, it does not negate his divinity. It, yeah. it, like it, a dude can have sex. It's fine. Um, yes. But then... The, if there was a genetic bloodline that could be traced back to a historical Jesus Christ, the Catholic Church would be all over that in a positive way because then it would be like, holy shit, we have empirical proof of a historical Jesus Christ. Like they, they have like records that are written hundreds of years after the time that Jesus was supposed to have been crucified, but there's no contemporary, there's no like Roman records of his crucifixion. There are like, there's of course no pictures. There's there's no like concrete yep there was a dude named yeshua that lived 
around Jerusalem or, or was born in Nazareth. Like, the, there's, there's nothing like that that they can definitively be like, yep, cool, we got it on a tablet, there it is. If there was something that they could point to, that's an affirmation of faith that you could tell everybody on the globe, we found a DNA record that goes back to this dude. He totally, definitely existed. That, like, would be a huge deal to Christians all over the world. So, like, th this being the crux of the story that would cause this, like, cold war for thousands of years of people chasing each other from country to country, murdering people in the shadows. No. Like, yeah. the, 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 the conceit is already out the door before we've even begun. But the, to sort of tie this back to Gone Girl, we talked about how Gone Girl made some changes to optimize it for the, the screen. To, like, they understood the medium, they moved it to the medium, and they shot it to where it made sense. And for two hours and 29 minutes, you didn't feel time pass. You were absorbed in the story. This movie is also two hours and 29 minutes, and it feels like six hours. Yes. Because when they adapted the book, they basically copy-pasted everything and then added scene headers between some paragraphs. Because there, there's nothing here that translates it to the screen. It, it's no. characters who are played by you know Tom Hanks and uh, Audrey Tato just saying the lines from the book. Yes. Standing around on a set. With no energy. Like, Tom Hanks looks oh, just confused in every scene. He's He has, like, one expression, and it's like... Like, yeah. I can't even do it. Or he's just like... Like, he looks just like, I don't know what's happening. But I also like, know what's happening He's getting his mind blown time. every second. But he's also... He's supposed to be, like, a professor in, like, religious... Journalism. He knows the shit. We are introduced to him giving he's this, like, seminar about, like, what these things mean. Of, like, how we need to, like, learn these symbols to understand our past. So that we, you know, understand our current and understand our future. And through that. So it's like, this guy's the leading expert in this. And, like, to the point where... Audrey tattoos like the it's a murder that kicks this off. It's a murder <laughs> in the loo, and, uh, and um, and it's Audrey Tato's grandfather who's murdered and basically put in the symbol. <laughs> this is also stu stupid. Uh, with the the PS, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, postscript. No, it means Princess <laughs> Sophie. Princess Sophie. It said, find Robert Langdon. Like, it's well, and, like, so it's like, find this guy, and then he's getting, he's so, like, kerfuffled at every single moment of the movie. It's like, he's useless. Why didn't you ask for him? He's getting led along by even Audrey Tato. Like, the, the, when yes. they show up there, he's in the, so the, the, the grandpa that's murdered is in the Vitruvian man pose on the ground. And so Tom Hanks, not being blind, makes the the like connection of like oh well he's in the Vitruvian man pose um this guy was also an expert in symbolism and he worked at the Louvre he's like a big fan of Leonardo da Vinci he's obviously trying to evoke that and then the message next to him has Mona Lisa is it Mona Lisa smile or is it something it says Mona it's Lisa, Mona Lisa. In, it's it is yeah it says Mona Lisa in the thing so he obviously makes a connection like okay Mona Lisa so they walk over to the painting he shines like a black light on it, and then it has an anagram, which, if if you want to get thrilled in a movie, watch a man silently solve an anagram, uh, is, uh, I mean, talk about, like, filmmaking genius, just to have it's... a man stare with furrowed brow at a wall for 30 seconds as he tries to figure out a bananagram. 
Um, and they do it multiple times in the movie of they just like do. somebody standing and, and thinking, and like that's that's the excitement of the of the movie is a man thinking silently. Well, there's but the he solves the, the he solves the anagram and it says like like something of the rocks, and he's like of the rocks. What could that mean? And Audrey Tatro's like, well, Madonna of the rocks. That's another painting by uh, Leonardo da Vinci. It's like over there. Oh, and it like leads him over there. So like. Tom Hanks is introduced as, like, first off, the expert in, like, religious symbolism, so he's supposed to be solving this shit, but then second, he becomes an empty vessel avatar for the crowd, that yes. we are now ex- living and experiencing this through, like, so, like, you can't have it both ways. Your protagonist no. can't be a blind moron led around by the nose and the the foremost expert in all of the his, history and symbolism shit that we're talking about. No, it made me yearn for, and I, and I dislike these movies strongly that I'm about to say, but it made me yearn for the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies. Like that's oh, how that's how boring this is because at least it's like because at least it's not what you just said where it's like the vessel but also the smartest person. It's like they're actually playing Sherlock like he's the smartest person in the room, and right. they're actually like cluing information other ways to get the audience into it it's still really those movies are kind of dumb but they at least like are momentous and consistent and this one's just like it's so dull i mean even duller the scene that had me screaming at my tv genuinely screaming at the tv was like towards the end when they're solving it and he borrows some dudes on the bus's phone and he goes to (laughs) quicksolve.net <laughs> and he puts in three keywords, and it comes back with the, the like the the Google search equivalent, and that leads into him solving the freaking puzzle box. And I'm just like, I was just like, no, I was like, this is some fear.com level oh, shit yeah. in a adaptation of a popular book that, mind again, you, was the second highest grossing movie worldwide of 2006. This was the second highest grossing movie of the year. That's, I mean, I guess I'm not going to say it's absurd because this is back when people still went to the movies just to go to movies. It was a popular book. Tom Hanks. I kind of get it. But, like, what the hell? <laughs> well, and, and, like, if we're, oh, my God, it's so fucking frustrating. Like, if we're going to think about him being a genius and we're already going to shoot scenes of him sitting, like, looking off in the middle distance and thinking really hard and that's how we get to the next plot point, like... I can Google shit. Yeah. Like, why like, am I watching why, the movie? Why, why even make him an expert? It. Why isn't he just some fucking passerby who got swept up? That would actually make it more exciting if he was just a dude who was at the museum for whatever reason that day, and he got swept up in this world that he doesn't understand and shit. But like him being in this middle place where like he he knows who the Priory of Sion is, and he knows the history of the Templars being killed by the Catholic Church, and he knows some of that backstory, so he can dump that exposition, and then just goes back to being a drooling moron that gets led around from scene to scene until he needs to Google something, which leads him to the tomb, and then he's a history expert again, and now he can solve all these... It's like, pick a fucking lane. What character is this? It's it's a character for no one, and therefore it's a movie for no one because it's just like, it, do you like exciting? He's just a plot device. Like he's not That's even a character. Is. Yeah, it's exactly all he is. But like, but they don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. He's a plot device, but they also try to treat him as a character. It's it's sort of like you know, 
apples and oranges in the type of movie. It's kind of like what we talked about the new Doctor Strange, where I'm like, I don't give a crap about him as a character because he is a plot device. Don't try me. Don't try to make me like care. You know what I mean? Like, and it's kind of the same way here, where I'm like, make the mystery engaging. Like, you know, if if your character is gonna be this or that, like, like you said, pick a fucking lane. But instead, um, we get these, like you said, these crazy long intellectual monologues. And then we get someone typing in a Google search on a BlackBerry. And it's just like, <laughs> come on. And I guess, like, I realized, too, like, it's it's crazy how little of this movie I actually remembered. I think the only thing I really remembered of the movie was was Paul Bettany, uh, uh, like, yeah. whipping himself. That's, like, the only thing I remembered from this movie. <laughs> But that's what a lot of people nowadays even just if you're going to refer to the Da Vinci Code, they refer to Paul Bettany's character being the fucking yeah, the, yeah. the flagellant, which he um, did, which he actually, honest to God, did. Uh, what so the they fuck? did really they he set up method? yeah he went method for that, which is just like mm. not for this it, movie, Paul. No, 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 no. <laughs> like it, it's really funny. Like there was like a thing that came out or or some sort of like discourse of like how you know sometimes things get blown out of proportion about like method actors like mm-hmm. we're like daniel day lewis for example was kind of that when he was young and got started like my left foot he made people yeah. like carry him around the set he's a bit of a but, dick about it a bit or, of a dick uh, about it. or no no it was a i think it was the scarlet letter was the one where he lived in one of those houses on the set that didn't yes. have plumbing or anything in it and got like tuberculosis or some shit but he didn't really do that in uh like his later movies where like even though he's super intense you would think that he did he just stays in character on set but he doesn't like you know like uh like i guess uh uh, paul f Tompkins has like a really funny story because he's like one of the background characters in there will be blood about how like about how he was giving him pointers of acting but he was saying it and doing it as intense as being Daniel Plainview but like <laughs> but like he was being genuine and having a conversation <laughs> right it. but he just wouldn't leave the character yeah. to do it or uh there was uh he listened to The Way I Am by Eminem to get the character of Bill the Butcher <laughs> oh yeah so it's yeah. like I guess what I'm saying is Paul Bettany probably got out of that phase cause usually the good actors uh realize that that's bullshit and then the bad actors are Jared Leto and they keep doing it <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about, man? Uh, mailing dead pets to your co-stars so you can be a bit role in some fucking DC movies. Uh, that's hardcore, man. That's acting. That's oh, art. yeah, man. Did, did he actually like live like a vampire when he made Morbius? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why Morbius is going to gross a trillion dollars. Um, <laughs> Morbius sweet, baby. It's still happening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But uh, no, sorry, we got way off topic. Here, uh, but, I do but, want to. I want to get back to that fucking Apple thing. Yes, I please found do. It I, w- I want to read it because this shit's so stupid. Um, <laughs> so like, they have a cryptix, and the cryptix is basically there's uh, five wheels on it, and each of the five wheels has twenty six letters. So, you know, the, the English alphabet, and so they need to solve this riddle in order to find out the the secret that's inside of this cryptix, and the riddle is. In London lies a knight, a pope interred. His labors fruit, a holy wrath incurred. You seek the orb that ought be in his tomb. It speaks of rosy flesh and seeded womb. So, I mean, the operative words there. Uh, uh, fruit, it's orb, rosy flesh, and seeded womb. You can kind of already guess that it's apple. Um, but then Robert Langdon finds out, oh, it's a it's a knight of Pope and Turd. 
uh, a pope is what she finds out by searching it on on uh, Ask Jeeves, um, and a pope uh, presided over the funeral of Isaac Newton because the church wouldn't do it because they fucking hated him for I mean, being smart, um, and so like okay Isaac Newton and a fruit with rosy flesh that has seeds in it. Like, I, I'm a fucking idiot, and I know that it's Apple. <laughs> and this movie tries to play this off as if it's, like, the, the like, who who could, like, there there's two scholars in a room between uh, Tom Hanks and Ian McKellen, who's playing uh, the teacher, who's, like, the bad guy, spoiler, but don't watch this movie, who gives a shit. But there's two scholars in this room who both have this information that are standing in Isaac Newton's tomb, who have this, this, this whole riddle... And Ian McKellen has a gun to, Aud- to Audrey Tato's head being like, we're going to blow her brains out unless you can figure out what it is. It's just like, you couldn't figure out a New York Times crossword puzzle. If yes. you can't, like, <laughs> it, like, this, th- like, li- like, if this is supposed to be, like, a world-crushing revelation that Jesus Christ had uh, an oops baby at some point with Mary Magdalene, if that's supposed to be this huge revelation... And it is locked behind like a third grade level riddle. It, like it's 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 so mind boggling that the entire movie hinges upon this. And then not only is it given away, it's like oh, it's Apple. Like there's a whole long like five minute long sequence revealing how he came up with the answer Apple, as if it's yes. like a genius uh, revelation that he stumbled upon. There's just like, dude, the audience got this like 40 minutes ago when you introduced it. <laughs> right. Only he, they, like, and then it becomes like that huge melodramatic moment of like, he does like a monologue and then throws the like Hellraiser puzzle mm-hmm. box that it's in. And it, it you know, because if it, if it breaks, then like liquid gets in it and then it like gets lost forever. And so, uh, like Ian McKellen freaks out and then the cops bring him in and he's like, you knew! You know what it is! You know! And it's, again, like, you didn't figure it out. It's Apple. Like <laughs> you should know. You should, know. especially because like he's supposed to be like they they go to Ian McKellen's house at some point in the movie because uh, Robert Lang Robert Langdon Tom Hanks is like I don't know anything about the I, I know like sort of the story of the Priory of Scion, but I don't really know anything. So we got to go to Exposition Man's house and he can dump all that on us. <laughs> so they go to Ian McKellen's house. There's like a 15 minute scene of him just like. Oh, here's the sign for male is a pyramid, and the sign for female is a chalice. And now let's look at the painting of the Last Supper. But it's all stuff that played better on the page in the novel that plays like boring ass shit on the screen. And they they walk through the entire fucking thing, but they set it up as if like he is the utmost expert on Leonardo da Vinci. He is an expert on the Priory of Scion. Like, he has been pulling the strings behind, like, the Catholic Church. Like, Ian McKelling knows everything. And then given the same amount of information for this third grade level riddle, he's resorting to, like, I'm going to shoot this fucking chick in the face if you don't tell me what the answer to this riddle is. It's just, like, nobody is struggling to figure this out except for these quote-unquote experts in this one field and it's fucking infuriating to be as an audience member treated like you are dumber than an eight-year-old agreed but it seemed to work because they it was a huge hit and they made two more of these dan brown adaptations Uh, mind you uh i have seen angels and demons um which was better than this one i will say not by much but ewan mcgregor 
automatically kind of makes it better. Um, I have not finished Inferno. I was going to try and watch it ahead of this one. But I, it was goofy what I saw of it, but I, I could not do it. Um, they still decided to make it, even though they, you know, were like, well, we'll give you half the budget. And it it looks half the budget <laughs> of, these two, of these previous two. Because they're going two, to these just gigantic cathedrals and stuff. They're just like hanging out in an IHOP and. I mean, well, it just looks like, you know, like a green screen, basically. Like, oh, whereas, okay. whereas, like, this one in Angels and Demons, like, you know, say what you will about the quality, and they're not good movies. Like, you know, they look expensive. They All the money's on the screen. They went to all these locales and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. But Inferno just looks, what I've seen of it, looks incredibly cheap. But, yes, I would agree. It's infuriating. It's really stupid. And yet, like, for a time and a place, for an exact time and place, 2003 to 2006, to be exact, uh, this... this enraptured audiences uh at least the book did i the movie did by probably just goodwill of the book but like mm-hmm. still it like people went and saw this in mass so that's that's wild uh don't don't yeah yeah if you haven't <laughs> don't, definitely don't, don't um and a movie that nobody saw in mass <laughs> <laughs> and still think, should not. <laughs> I don't think anybody saw it all. Is the <laughs> snowman? A woman vanished last night. We just found the body. Prince. And the head is missing. calls himself the snowman killer. He's completely insane. I'm thinking that he's going after women that he disapproves of. The only thing we know for sure is that he's playing games with us. <laughs> this this is a movie, this was sort of, like this image in my head was sort of kind of the basis for this episode, because I remember seeing a, I, was, I think I was funny enough because I'm in New York right now, I think it was coming back from New York, and I saw an end cap at a Hudson at SeaTac with books of, for the snowman that said, now a major motion picture. <laughs> and it was like, it had already flopped and, lo- and been out of theaters like at that point. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not a major motion. <laughs> it's a motion picture, I guess. Some, some guy came out with a sharpie and just crossed out major. <laughs> I mean, it would have fit that like terrible snowman uh, drawing of the the <laughs> yeah, Mister Police, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this is a movie. I have a lot of explaining to do for this one. I'm yes, so sorry. Yes, you uh, do because. This movie is bad. I will I will straight up not argue. So this is also one, too, I feel safe saying. And I don't mean to talk over you, but um, neither of us have read this book. <laughs> I, uh, uh, this is, I think this is a series of books, much like Dan Brown's ones with Robert Langdon. Like, I think Harry Hole, who, who maybe it's Hole, I don't know, but Harry Hole. Just terrible. It's Harry, it's Harry Hole is how they pronounce it in the movie. And I had to pause the movie and remind him, be like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he is not a porn star. Um, and, but I think... This is an erotica I think, novel. I think this is a series of books featuring him as a, a detective. And um, so I was, I was first, before I even knew anything about the movie, I was interested from just 
like you know i think i was still probably writing for some site at the time in addition to my day job and i think i was like looking at like movies upcoming and so the the talent in front and behind the camera was what piqued my interest of like oh it's by thomas alfredson uh you know who did let the right one in who did tinker taylor soldier spy so he's a really good filmmaker oh it stars michael fassbender and rebecca ferguson and Charlotte Gainsbourg, like, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Also a stack cast in this movie. So I was like, oh, this sounds great. And then I saw the trailer in front of something, and I was like, I'm still going to see it, but I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it hit, flopped horribly in the theaters, and but, like, it got memed to death, mainly because the teaser poster of the movie is just a picture of that snowman drawn by the serial killer on the middle. Oh, yeah. And it says, Dear Mr. Police, I could have saved you. I gave you all the clues. And um, I really enjoyed the meme, and I still enjoy the memes to this day. But I missed it in theaters. Came to home video. I'll admit I got very stoned, because I was very excited that this was out. And I was like, okay, I, I like I like directorial whiffs. Like, I, I have a thing for like when good filmmakers go wrong. Like I like it when they go right more than anything but when they go wrong that's at least fascinating wrongs um and this movie is oh my god like i I, it's kind of baffling but it's but it's baffling in a way that i find at least watchable whereas like something like almost heroes where we catalog it sort of behind the scenes production problems and how it you know arrived to people in its current state um, but like that movie's a comedy and watching a bad comedy flop and fail on the screen is like absolutely miserable to sit through. Whereas like this is right. a bad sort of pot boiler. And so it's, I, I to say it's not miserable to sit through might be a bit <laughs> generous, but I, I was least, miserable. <laughs> that's fair. I, it's, I found it at least fascinating of just like, how did all these people, all involved and like we didn't even throw out like other people who are involved through the cast like it's shot by dion baby who mm-hmm. did uh shot collateral among many other things one shot of the equilibrium co- shot equal <laughs> coming to a, a uh chris have just, one episode near you chris is just advertising our upcoming episodes <laughs> which is totally fine um getting out of talking about the snowman which is understandable um the one of the co-editors of this movie is thelma shoemaker the great thelma shoemaker because initially in its very early state of this movie scorsese was going to direct this movie um and then it sort of like never came to fruition quick enough and he walked from the project and he became an uh, executive producer on it so thomas alf thomas alfredson got the the gig but like the studio kind of drug their feet and hemmed and hawed until it was time to go. And then when it was time to go, like the production was rushed, I guess up to 15% of this movie, what was in the script was not shot. Yeah. And you can tell because this Mm -hmm. movie, this is, this movie is, and then the movie, like things just happen and the movie's just like, Oh yeah. And then this, Oh yeah. And then this, no connective tissue. No connective tissue. It's just a series of that throughout the entire movie. It is weird, and and for a movie that's is like that's trying to uh, like you know it's kind of trying to play in the David Fincher vein where it's like it's, it's very trying. 
it's 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 you know it's a serial killer movie it's cold you know it's got that cold like look to it it's same like it's attempting the color grading of like really yes. darkening the scenes artificially absolutely so there's that element it's really really kind of really violent at times it's kind of nasty in some of its violence for sure so which which fincher's it's another fincher hallmark but it's like none of it goes together and it's so like sort of shoddily made that like you shouldn't be laughing at these moments of horrific violent but like i kind of was like oh when i'm assuming that you're talking about the val kilmer the shotgun that just comes out of fucking nowhere yeah yeah yes yeah yeah yeah. where and it looks horrible like it it's it's so bad and then to cap it all off this horrible like cgi looking like headshot they didn't do like a dummy or anything like that that he goes and he puts a fucking snowman on the head so like first of all okay let's get into the concept of the movie first because I, I i got a whole thing to say about that we, we were like two-thirds of the way through the movie like, like there for a second we gotta rein it back we gotta rein it back because so okay so i feel like even if this came to fruition properly and not in a rushed, weird, misshapen blob that this movie came in. <laughs> it packaged as. You're fighting an uphill battle with someone whose calling card is leaving a fucking snowman at the scene of the crime. You know how long it takes to make a snowman? A, and a yeah. good snowman at that? It takes me forever to make a shitty snowman. <laughs> <laughs> like, mine is all, like, blobby and the... the, 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 the I can't get the right stick... And I have, uh, you know, baby carrots and not an actual full carrot. Like, it takes so long to make a good snowman. Like, there would be witnesses. Somebody across the street would be like, hey, there's some guy in the yard uh, making a snowman. Um, Someone should probably go take a look at this. Yeah, it's like, hey, uh, we found a dead body in this house uh, last night. Did you see anything weird? Uh, Yeah, I saw a dude uh, with blood all over his hands just putting together a snowman at the front lawn. (laughs) at 2.30 in the morning for some reason. Like, and it, it's playing off of, like, again, as a fan of true crime, Zodiac sent letters. Uh, there are several serial killers who take keepsakes and stuff. Like, it's not unheard of. Uh, Signs of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill would put the, the dead head moth down, like, his victim's throats. Right. But that shit that's happening behind closed doors. Like, it is it is inconceivable to think about a guy who would be a crafty, smart serial killer who's not only sending terrible little postcards to the cops with his shitty little cartoon uh, snowman <laughs> on them, but building a goddamn snowman for every one of his kills that he commits. Like, first off, that would be the first thing that would go in the paper is, like, we're looking for somebody who's building snowmen. Tell us if yeah. you find them. People will keep an eye out. The city would also like, be like, oh, this guy. don't don't build snowmans. Like, like a public service announcement right. like, warning. Like, don't be building snowmans. We're going to be looking for it. So none of that happens. Everyone seems very lackadaisical about the whole thing, too. Like, Nothing investigative happens at all. No, it's in this movie. so bizarre. It, it's There's such two a... detectives in this movie, and they do not detect. No, they don't. It's It's... it's and it's another sort of like Robert Langdon situation to a certain extent with uh, with Harry Hole. So it gets it with laughing. Uh, Michael Fassbender's character in the movie, who's like who's supposedly this like great detective, like um, yeah. like Rebecca Ferguson's character, like who's who's like a, a new 
you know, up like detective, like a new recruit, like you know, was like, oh, I've studied your cases. Like you're really like great. And it's like, he does know like you're a legend. Work. Yeah, but he's a, I mean he's drunk. So I mean, there's that element. He's a drunk. Well, we're cause... introduced to him waking up in like a like a playhouse on a playground in the middle yes. of winter. So yes. we're like, oh, okay, this guy's a vagrant. And then the movie has to be like, oh, no, actually, he's a detective who is an alcoholic. Which, like, he has to be a real bad alcoholic if you were, like, leaving work for a week at a time and falling asleep on playgrounds. Like, he's yeah. really hurting and suffering. In and winter, the movie in doesn't Oslo. Address it. In winter, the movie in Oslo. It. No, yeah, it doesn't address it. Yeah, exactly. Like, you'd be freezing. <laughs> Come on. So... So the movie doesn't address that, and then the movie sort of, like, the, the thing is, because I had the Wikipedia page up, and it's, like, when you read it, it ends, and it, like, but it makes, what I read made so much more sense than the movie itself. Because I it had to read the Wiki page to understand the movie. Because <laughs> yeah, it, it connects the characters together, you get it, you know, where you're yeah. just, like, because it's, like, you're just, you're just introduced to a hodgepodge of different characters, where you have, like... Uh, the 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 woman that uh, broke up with with Harry Hole, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, and like uh, I know you're snickering to see it. It's it's hard not to, um, you know. Could, and that's like sort of the the crux of guess of his alcoholism because like he not only is he you know love her but also is like yeah her son like felt like a son to him and so right. like he promises to take him to like these events and then he like forgets uh because of work and whatnot yada 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 and she's seeing a guy we'll get into the guy that she's seeing it's like it, and it, that's the thing is bad even as bad as the movie is and how nonsensical it is you could also see that coming from a mile away oh yeah of yours like well yeah that that's the guy <laughs> like that's totally well and it's another guy. thing where they they don't they don't viably introduce any other red herring characters no that that kind of throw you off the path to where you're like uh, like, because they at one point they introduce like J.K. Simmons is like this big, uh, uh, which I love seeing J.K. Simmons. He has a scene in this movie that made me laugh so fucking hard I had to pause the movie. Him uh, trying to do a Swedish accent? No, <laughs> that was that was funny. But the, the um, but the I don't know if I should jump to that or no, no, I won't. No, you uh, should. But, you should. Who cares? Okay, I'll jump to it. Um, there's a scene later on in the movie where. Uh, the uh, Rebecca Ferguson, she suspects that he has something to do with these murders for some unknown reason. There's yeah, never she any- just says it. She just says it. She's like, I think he has something. To- I remember that vividly. I think he has something to do with it. And it's mainly Which is because like this really prominent like guy in politics and like I mean like rich people are up to some shady ass shit. I yes. get it, but like you can't be like if a murder happens in my town, I can't be like Obama did it get him like it doesn't, yeah just just because he's a prominent figure doesn't mean that he's responsible for murdering people and building snowmen i think the thing that 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 was one it's weird this whole element as well i think her crux which again it still makes no sense however you try to rationalize it is that the movie also has a weird fucking jaws-esque like plot because yes. they, they they the snowman murders are happening but like harry superior doesn't want like it to get too much in the media because they're trying to get a bid for the winter olympics mm-hmm. and it's yeah. just like okay like we should probably do something about the snowman worker <laughs> before a bunch of people show up for the olympics we should maybe catch that serial killer um yeah maybe we should have saved this uh for our eventual uh foreign films who have a vague jaws plot episode uh because i will try and fit as many jaws 
centric episodes into the show as well. I mean, I guess technically it's not a foreign film. It's made by a Swedish filmmaker. That is true. But, but anyway, you were sorry. I uh, cut you off. JK no, no, you're Simmons. good. Uh, so she suspects that he's a killer for no reason whatsoever, and she goes to like a gala to meet him. And she's flirting with him and trying to, to set up a way for them to uh, meet up later. And I think planning to get him to confess. Um, and so she like meets him in the middle of like this this party. She's flirting with him. And he kind of like <clears throat> stops his conversation and pulls out his cell phone and just like snaps a picture of her face and turns and walks away without saying goodbye, <laughs> which is really fucking weird. And I was like, what the fuck happened? And then another guy like like comes out of the woodwork, talks to him uh, behind like this little armoire that's in the room. He like kind of has like a sidebar conversation with J.K. Simmons, and then comes walking over to Rebecca Ferguson, and he's like, uh, uh, "Arve Stolp uh, really, uh, you know, liked uh, his time that he spent with you. Um, he would like you to know that he's staying in room, whatever the fuck, uh, and would like it if you would like come and stay with him later." And she she turns and looks over her shoulder, over her shoulder, back towards where he's at, and it does a rack focus. And J.K. Simmons is standing behind the armoire with, like, half of his face poking out, just giving, like, a sheepish smile, like, a, like yeah, yeah, you want to come to my room later? And it's, like, and he's, like, and also it's not across the room. He's, like, five feet from her. Like, like she could take one step and, like, touch him with her. Like, he's so close. And it's the weirdest fucking blocking I have ever, like... If he would have been across the room and, like, been getting a champagne or something and, like, giving her a nod or something, it would have made more sense. Like, I guess he could have just invited her and been like, hey, I really enjoyed my time with you. I have to go mingle. You want to come by my room later? Hand it off. They didn't have to do this weird relay race with a bodyguard. But the fact they do the relay race and he steps away, like, five feet from them to where he's within earshot. He can hear the conversation that they're having. He's not that far away. And just like, yeah, you want to come to my room? I'm going to, okay, now I'm going to slide behind the armoire so you can't see me. It's just like, it's, I, and it's weird because I know that this is a competent director. Yes, so you have very good to question. You have to question what are you looking at? Because yes. like when you're when you're building the scene, when you're blocking the scene, when you're talking to these actors, no one stood up and went like, "This doesn't make fucking sense." Nobody would do this. Even like a cartoon would not do this. Yeah, it's all wrong. Everything about it is wrong. Like there's the scene. There's our like first victim that happens in the movie, um, where like the the woman gets hit by the snowball, and then mm-hmm. she like goes home and. Uh, like we see like lingering sort of like POV shots and they're trying to set up a red herring in that shot mm-hmm. essentially where like you know like uh, a, a man like it's a wide and a man in like all dark clothes comes down the stairs and it's supposed to be like a like a like shocking reveal of it and then he like is just like you said you'd be home by 8 30 um <laughs> so that like, she could watch the kid and it like it felt like a shot from like airplane like like that's yeah. that's like what it felt like it was like this 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 so this felt like the a parody of this type of movie and it's really really weird. Um, what I and, thought and, that was setting him up to be like a red herring to like oh well maybe he killed his wife and like yes if they would have given that time to where the detectives are like dismissive and being like. Like, do, like, take a book out of God Girl's page where the, the detectives are like, well, we're going to follow the path of least resistance. The husband obviously killed the wife. We're going to start trailing this guy. And then another murder pops up. 
And then they got to go like, oh, okay, well, all of our assumptions are out the window, but then keep that guy in the back burner. Maybe he is a serial killer. Like, keep reintroducing him and stuff. But, like, they do that in the scene, giving this guy basically a, a bit of a uh, – a, a bit of a – like an ex- a, a motive. That's the word I'm looking for. A bit of a motive to want to kill his wife is that the only interaction we see between them is he's mad at her. Right. Uh, like you do, you do this shit all the time. You're always leaving me here. You're always late. What are you off doing? Maybe he suspects her of having an affair. Like there's reason there to suspect that maybe this guy could be the killer. And the movie introduces it and then drops it. And I think that guy shows up in like a cell phone video at the tail end of the movie to help Harry Hole figure out where he needs to go to like solve the investigation. But the the movie like sets it up and ignores it. For the rest yes. of the, the runtime, yeah, it it does. It, like it sets up and ignores that. Um, there's a weird subplot with uh, Chloe Savigny playing like two like dual yeah. characters that goes. Which I love Chloe Savigny. Every time I see her in a movie, yeah. I get like so excited and happy. But I me was, too. Like, I was felt bad for her in this movie. Well, and it's just do. like it has nothing to do, and then she's like murder, and then it like has no bearing on the rest of the movie either. She's just like a right. victim in this whole like grand scheme of things. Um, and then we're oh god I feel this this is the one I feel the most bad about is like we gotta talk about Val Kilmer unfortunately uh, yeah. poor Val dude like um, so what I think happened give if if I'm assuming given the the product if the production strengths were so bad and this was so rushed and they didn't shoot 15 percent of the movie I'm going to guess that they shot this as cheap as possible with what they had and the movie despite having some some decent like you know, gets shot by Dion Baby, so it's got some, like, decent, There's like, some, looking some really stuff. There's some really good, like, especially, like, Vistas and stuff that look really, really Absolutely. Good. But, like, outside of that, it looks, like, pretty damn cheap. Like, it looks as cheap as they possibly can. So I'm led to believe that if that was the case, because Val Kilmer's lines in this movie, every one of his lines are 100% dubbed. There's not yes. a single line that comes out of his mouth that is his. They and often... obviously dubbed. It's obviously dubbed because it's not even synced all that well either. And it's very no. clearly dubbed, very clearly not him. They're very clearly trying to cut, you know, either over the shoulder or behind the back to to mask the fact that it's not him talking. And I'm going to assume that he was cast prior to having surgery. Mm-hmm. And then, but he couldn't speak when he did this. So, but they were too cheap to go find another actor because under his contract, I'm sure he had to be paid. So they're like, well we're just going to dub his lines and it's like that's not fair like for one and even number two he doesn't really get i mean he too doesn't get much to do like his arc sort of like mirrors harry's like that's sort of the whole i guess point because it's like he's on the track of this you know about of a snowman murder because this happened nine years prior so he's tracking the case and he can't solve the case and he's getting drunk and and all this stuff and then Mm -hmm. we also come to find out in the biggest just and then that Rebecca Ferguson is his daughter and so mm-hmm. that's why she's you know became a detective so then to find the the snowman killer and right. only for him to get dispatched in as we already talked about the most horrible horrible looking CG like death sequence that I've ever seen in a I was gonna say major motion picture but once again we're not using major it's just a motion picture um and it's so random, like like the the was ninety like, percent off screen too, like which pissed me off. Well, like, it's him yelling, like he's like, yeah. "What are you like?" And, and clearly not Val Kilmer's voice, 
Right. Like, oh, it's a really what, bad Ted Levine impression. What are you doing here? And then it cuts like right into his barn where he's just like up there, and then get you know shotgun blast, like, and then you know it's is. But it's like the the worst. Like it looks like I can't even think. I was trying to think of a good comparison, but it's just like it's it's clearly the worst. Like CGI. They didn't use a dummy. Oh, yeah. They just like used a terrible like CG effect. And then to cap it all off. The frickin' snowman killer puts a snowman head on his <laughs> blown off head, and it's the worst looking thing. It's it's, and like you said, to go kind of back to what you said, so this is a competent filmmaker, a very competent filmmaker. What happened here? Well, and the thing is, I wouldn't even say implicitly that that this this setup and payoff on paper would be a bad thing which is, would make me curious to read the book but I'm not going to so sorry but um, <laughs> the, but like the way that it's set up so they're doing a cross cut basically throughout the movie where they keep introducing Rafto which is Val Kilmer's character who is on the case of this killer we end up as you said through a, a, a bunch of bullshit circumstances find out Rebecca Ferguson is his daughter and that she's been trying to solve his murder but like basically everyone cast it aside saying that rafto got too tied up in the case he was a drunk and he killed himself in his cabin and so then we get to a point where fassbender is talking to uh toby jones uh who's playing dc svensson um who basically is telling him like yeah it was clearly a suicide he was by himself in his cabin the door was locked from the inside um and fassbender uh has these crime scene photos where he can see him in the chair with his head blown in half and he's like well what are these things on the ground uh, that are around him and they look like coffee beans which is like the, on the picture it just looks like black grain on film so i don't know how he's able to tell that but he's pointing at them the guys are, well you know we didn't bag it so we wouldn't know and so we're thinking like maybe we're gonna cut to like he even asked like is the cabin still there and and toby jones is like i don't even know and that's how the scene ends is, yeah. is him like kind of shrugging and then Fastbender stands up and leaves the room. So we're thinking Fastbender's going to drive up into the mountains. He's going to go to the cabin. He's going to look around the cabin and try and like find some clues and piece together the crime scene. But instead, we get a smash cut to an establishing shot of a cabin with like this really terrible Ted Levine impression of like, hey, what are you doing with my gun? Uh, put the lotion in the basket. And we cut inside... To the terrible CG, a collapsed man in a chair, he blows his head in half. And so we're just like, oh, okay. So no mystery, no detection. We don't need to rely on any of these paper, like paperwork that's been handed to Fastbender. Like none of that. You're just going to show us what happened, bold-faced, and there's no reason for us to be intrigued in your mystery or be strung along or give a shit at all about the story that you're telling us. Yeah. No, not, not at all. I mean, and there's, there's no... Like, and, it, and it's trying to do a sort of parallel, like, mystery, too, right? And neither of them work. It's, like, the snowman killer, and then, like, they're trying to do a false herring with uh, with J.K. Simmons' character, which mm-hmm. is how Rebecca Ferguson's character meets her demise, because she tries to pull a cat blue and, like, goes in as a prostitute and, like, nice. tries to get <laughs> him to confess that he had something to do with her father's murder, um, and then she gets killed by the snowman killer, and like unceremoniously and it's just like yes. 
in a and weird... And we also don't really care. No, <laughs> like, we don't happens, care. Like, but, but then it's also right. a weird kind of cross-cutting attempt at, like, juxtaposition because uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, like, comes back to uh, Harry Hole's apartment and they start, like, getting it on and it's trying to, like, cut between that and Rebecca Ferguson getting, you know, murdered by the snowman killer. Which also makes no sense because... I mean, I guess, like, unless they were at a different place in time, but, like, the way the movie cuts makes it seem like they're happening, like, simultaneously. And, like, right after that happens, Charlotte Gainsbourg goes out to, uh, outside and is talking with her, her boyfriend, who ends up, you know, be, you know, the one being the snowman killer. So I'm like, wait, wait a minute, how, you couldn't go from (laughs) wherever they were at to being over wherever Harry Hole's apartment is. I mean, I guess we know he knows where Harry Hole lives because, uh... He was in there dressed as the guy, like, fumigating the house. Yeah. Because uh, he thought he thought his house was being worked on. He's listening to that, whatever, that, like, popcorn Shit dance song. Yeah, it's called, the song's called Popcorn. I don't remember who sings it, but it's, like, the weirdest little, like, techno song. It's garbage it's like, is what it is. I was like, look, he already has a calling card with the snowman. Did you need to tack on the techno song, too? Yeah. What is like and and he like he's supposed to be a brilliant detective and he didn't find it weird because like they go to uh, uh, Chloe Sofini's, uh house and she's not in it but that popcorn song is playing and they're like hey um, somebody reported you missing but you're obviously not missing so you know sorry to bother you I turned your music off inside and there's a reverse shot of Chloe Savini in that scene where she kind of gives like a uh, like a what like a I, like music I don't like but she doesn't have a line she gives just kind of like a, a, a look of just like music I don't know what he's talking about and then the scene ends and then she gets killed after they leave the house the killer is there right. who's hiding he comes out and he kills her and then he hears the same song later in his apartment and there's a guy in there dancing and he comes in just turns the music off and he's like get the fuck out of my apartment and the guy leaves and it's just like yeah. aren't you supposed to be making connections Maybe, yeah. you know, drawing lines between A and B, <laughs> solving riddles. I like having having a mystery to string us along and keep me engaged and interested. It's Can we get to the end of this fucking movie? I want yeah. to talk about the end. Yeah, let's talk to the end. I'll give it to you because you've been waiting so patiently. So Fuck this movie. <laughs> so he basically basically through circumstances we we get introduced so like there's this Charlotte Gainsbourg who plays Raquel or Raquel yeah. who is Harry Hole's uh, love interest uh, she is like at her apartment and the guy that she's been seeing Matthias uh, played by Jonas Carlson he like shows up and he's just like uh, hey is Harry here no oh is your kid here no oh cool so he just pulls out some zip ties and then everyone in the audience goes well yeah yeah uh, cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. We're not surprised. He goes, gets her, picks up the the kid. Uh, Harry Hole figures out that he is the killer through circumstances that just reveal themselves to him, and he doesn't have to do any work. And then he goes driving out to this cabin that's in the middle of nowhere, which we're introduced to in the beginning of the movie. And he has like his. Uh, it's like a. It's like a wire gun. Uh, wire cutter gun and he has that like around Rebecca Ferguson's uh, not Rebecca Ferguson she's already dead around Charlotte Gainsbourg's throat and he's he like quizzes uh, Michael Fassbender on some shit which uh, he could have just shot him in the head uh, and it, everything would have like he had a gun and he was just like put put the gun down or I'll slowly tighten this lever around this you just shoot him in the face uh, but he doesn't 
he puts his gun down and he entertains him. Um, they get into a fight, uh, and the guy takes off running into the snow. And instead of being a police officer, understanding that he has his phone on him and he could just call them and say, hey, it's this Matthias guy. Um, <laughs> freezes accounts. He ran off into the middle of the wilderness in the snow. Uh, we'll find him. <laughs> like, I don't need to chase him. He runs off unarmed uh, to, to go chasing after the guy into the snow. And he runs out on the frozen lake. Doesn't know where he's at. So he stands in place and just starts going, hey! Hey! Hey, guy with a gun! I I don't know where you're at, but now you know exactly where I'm at! And just standing there, he gets shot. Uh, because fucking of course. He goes down, and then Matthias approaches him slowly with his gun out. Um, instead of just killing him for no explained reason. Uh, Michael Fassbender gives him the obvious uh, sort of explanation uh, of his insanity, where he's just like, Hey, uh, you're killing mothers of children who don't know their fathers because you're a child of a mother, but you didn't know your father, but it was your father's fault all along, so why weren't you killing the fathers? And then this gives him, like, a pause of, like, where? And then he goes to take a step forward, and on this giant frozen lake uh, that they had just been running across, there is one three... A uh, foot wide, one meter wide hole in the ice <laughs> that just happens to be right there between him and Michael Fassbender that he totally didn't see while he was walking up, and he just steps into it, falls into it, and the current carries him away, and then the movie ends a minute later when it, Harry Hole takes on a different case. Because it's like poetry, it rhymes. That's how his mom died at the beginning of the movie, which I don't even think it's, we mentioned in that prologue of. <laughs> I, I hate. I'm just going to put it on record, and I, I'm, I might be forgetting a movie that I actually do like that ends this way, but I'm going to put it on record and saying, I hate movies where the antagonist meets their demise by just fucking up, and, <laughs> and like, nobody around them had anything to do with it, like, nobody laid a trap or anything like that, they just weren't paying attention, and then they get killed, or taken out of, of the situation, because, because it's just like... Why have buildup? Yeah, then? it's true. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you in that realm. I'm, it's I'm a, wondering if you have an example of something that's actually good because I can't think of one where I'd have to dive in to to find that. I'm not going to find it off the top of my head before the we wrap. I mean, there's this obviously like up. there's obviously like oh now Mr. Bonds let me well, reveal yeah. my entire purpose to you. But then Bond usually figures out, so, like, in that interim time where he's monologuing, you figure out something that's in the environment and you could stop him or trap him or do something. Like, it's, I can't think of, like, there's a few other movies, uh, one of which I won't give the title, but it will be coming to an episode of Good About What Podcast near you, um, where the killer is doing this thing the entire time and at the end of the movie, they just fuck up and kill themselves and nobody had anything to do with it. And it's just like, oh, well... To put a stop to that. <laughs> All right. Good. Roll credits. Okay. We didn't know how to end the movie, so then I just it just ended, I guess. All right. Well, I mean, I can't I can't knock that. I can't argue that. <laughs> <laughs> and and like I said, this I, I realize, you know, after rewatching it, it's like yeah, this is not much of a what as as I recall it being. Not in the sense that we usually do in it, but I I still. I will still go to bat in that regard if we're looking at these three movies holistically because if we're looking at Gone Girl, which is a movie that is a 
mostly faithful adaptation that they, you know, that they actually retooled and made it cinematic. And then the Da Vinci Code, that's a dry, like, faithful, but really... Too faithful. But it's too faithful, too dry, nothing cinematic about it. And then the Snowman... I don't know what they were doing. Like, Cuts at out all. a portion of the story. Doesn't give a shit at all. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, they the movies work, and I think it does work in a good, bad, what in that context, where it's three adaptations, and the what adaptation is the one where they were just like, "Fuck it, let the yeah. chips fall where they may," and this Pretty is what much. you get. It's it, it it's a movie. I I can't even say it's a movie made by committee. It's just I don't even. Right. I don't even know. It's it's and it's wild to me that like if they were gonna make this like mid budget like adult movie or, or lower budget you know movie aimed at an adult audience, they're much more picky than like younger people. So it's like your only chance to get people to see eyeballs on a movie called The Snowman that's a dark like thriller is for it Hard to R be thriller. Good. It's for yeah. it to be good. If it is, I guess even if it's mediocre because there's like that movie. It's not based on a book, but there's like that movie called Law Abiding Citizen with uh, Gerard Butler and Jamie Foxx that's like kind of a also in that dark like thriller vein that like was a good hit. It, it's also not very good, but like it people went and saw it. So it's just like but the fact that this movie was so so colossally maligned, like I think it's got like a seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, you know, make Too of that high. what you will, but um too high, yeah, exactly. I think it opened to like three million, and it made like under seven million at the box office domestically. Like it, it tanked hard. And I mean, for right good, now. and for good reason. Six percent. Oh, six percent. Okay. So I was giving it too Yikes. much credit. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I got when when we disperse from this podcast, I'm gonna go. I want to go find the the like the one positive review or the two positive reviews out of that and see what, what they said. It's Fastbender. I I don't even think Fastbender would go to bat for this. <laughs> I don't honestly. I I think he he would not. I think probably. some of the I think some of the crummy X Men movies he's been in, he'd probably go to bat for over <laughs> for this. But uh, do you have do you have any other thoughts on these three movies before we wrap this episode up? No, <laughs> Just, no, for real this time. No, no I have I, none. I know. I thought no. I thought it was a really interesting episode. Uh, like I, I'm glad that you framed it in the context of if we're looking at these as adaptations. Obviously, you're more successful when you adapt a story for the medium. So I, I'm glad that we were able to sort of split it up and talk about them like that. Totally. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. Um, and we're going to keep the good times rolling because next week is your picks. Yes, it is my pick. Uh, I'm going to go with a, a hopefully a fun one. I, I, I'm trying not to. Uh, I don't want to get too into the weeds with uh, current uh, happenings. But if we can get uh, back to the old days of grimy 80s slashers, specifically ones that are centered around killer cops. Yes, so we will be getting into that. Like you said, we we, we we are looking at it through the view of the type of movies they are. Um, yes. I'm sure there's going to be, you know, some societal reflecting uh, in that realm. But, um, you know, we are focused on the sort of horror genre of, of those movies. But um, I look forward to discussing that with you. But in the meantime, 
You can find all of our episodes on our website at thegoodbadwhat.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, and many others. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thegoodbadwhat, and you can email us at thegoodthebadthewhat at gmail.com. If you're feeling generous and want to support the show, we have a donations tab on our website, and all donations go back to the show, whether that's to offset the cost of running movies we discuss or upgrading our equipment. Our logo comes from Michelle Parkos, and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and SoundCloud link you can find in the show notes, respectively. Chris, where can more people find you online? Yeah, you can find me online on Twitter at THOChristo89 or on Letterboxd at C underscore THOM. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at Ryan underscore Oliver. I almost forgot my alias for a second. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with our horror-tinged murderous cop episode. You fucking bitch. Oh!